0: Sunday, 12th of March, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder, and coming up, we'll be hearing about what another five years of Xi Jinping means for China and why the big hit to growth from monetary tightening is yet to come. But for now, I'm joined once again by Neil Shearing, our Group Chief Economist. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. So we're hours away from the start of Asian trading markets are on tenterhooks about the fallout of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank at the end of last week. Obviously, this is a very fluid situation. Based on the information that we have at the moment, I've got to start by asking, does this feel like a Lehman moment, you know, an institutional collapse threatening to engulf the financial system? Or is SVB just an isolated case that won't actually mean contagion? Well, we're right.
1: It's still a very fluid situation. I think the one thing we can say is the situation regarding SVB itself is not replicated very widely across the US banking system. SVB was in a somewhat unique situation insofar as its depositors were predominantly tech companies and had large deposits. It turns out because those companies have been hit quite hard, those deposits tend to be quite flighty. What's more, on the asset side of its balance sheets, it appears that they had, rather than loading out deposits and having assets in the form of of loans, they have invested in securities and the value of those securities had fallen as interest rates increased deposits are withdrawn, they had to liquidate those assets in order to meet those redemptions. Then those assets got marked to market and the solvency of the institution was called into question. Ultimately, the institution collapsed. That doesn't seem to be replicated widely, as far as we can tell, across the US banking system. However, um, I think the big risk is that this turns into not a solvency crisis for US banks, which was what Lehman's was really about. It was about big falls in asset prices, particularly the collapse of the housing market, banks being over leveraged and then when asset prices fell and those were defaulted upon that the whole the of the banking system was called into question. Instead I think the risks in this crisis stem more on the liability side which is to say as fears about the health of some kind of mid-tier regional banks in the US start to spread you know, potentially we start to see runs on those banks and that, that precipitates broader problems in the financial system. Now the good news such as there is any is that policy makers are much better placed to be able to deal with those types of problems than they are solvency problems. If you've got a solvency problem, if you're gonna rescue that institution, somebody needs to to bear that loss. It's, it's normally taxpayers. If it's a liquidity driven problem, a liability side problem, then central banks have tools at their disposal, repos, et cetera, et cetera. The government, for example, could expand also deposit insurance that will shore up faith in the system, give banks access to the liquidity and try and stem that liquidity crisis. So in answer to your question, there are big differences with the Lehman's crisis in the mid-2000s doesn't mean to say that the next week or so is not going to, going to be tumultuous in the US banking system. But if it's a liquidity-driven event rather than a solvency-driven event, there are tools that policymakers have at their disposal that will help to, to mitigate some of those wider risks.
0: We've got Simon McAdam up in a bit talking about the impact on economic growth to come of the rate hike so far. SVB does seem like an example of the unintended consequences of monetary tightening, doesn't it? Is there a risk that there'll be more episodes like this as as this
1: battle to contain inflation continues? I suspect there will be, yes. It's the old adage, isn't it, that it's only when the tide goes out that you see who's swimming naked. And I suspect there will be more naked swimmers, so to speak, as the effects of higher interest rates roll through the financial system. The good news, though, is that the U.S. banking system in aggregate is much better capitalized than was the case 20 years ago. So the risk of major institutions falling over and requiring government bailouts Is is much lower. Instead, the risk, as I said, is more to do with what's happening on the liability side of banks' balance sheets, and perhaps a loss of faith in the system. And I think that's where we start to see policymakers step in over the course of the next week or so. It's going to be in that direction. The thrust will be to shore up the deposit insurance schemes. It will be to provide liquidity to banks, short-term liquidity to banks through repos, thirty-day, sixty-day, ninety-day, etc. And I and that will help, I think, to, to to perhaps mitigate some of these risks.
0: How does the Fed play this? There's there's reports swirling of scramble to get support measures in place before the market opens. Rate high expectations obviously jumped last week, early last week after Jerome Powell's talkish comments to the Senate, but they quickly came back down in light of the SVB meltdown. So what does heightened financial stability risk mean in terms of the Fed's Uh, fight to control inflation?
1: Look, I think the the events of the past week or so neatly illustrate the challenge facing not just the Fed, but all central banks. On the one hand, they've got to stamp out inflation. On the other hand, they've got to do that while maintaining financial stability. Uh, We know that further interest rates go up, the greater the risk to asset prices, and and also to financial stability. And we've, we've seen that play out over the course of the last few days in the US. Now, if you're a central banker, what do you do? Well, I think one what you need to do is take account of the lags involved in monetary policy and the pass through to the real economy as you mentioned we published a piece of work on that in the last few days which we'll be discussing later in the podcast the essence of which is most of the effects of this monetary tightening have yet to be felt in the real economy uh, on the other hand at the same time you've got to try and identify those risks in the financial system um and you know, make sure that you have things like repo windows open in order for institutions that need to access short-term liquidity to be able to do so. But overall, I think the main takeaway from the events of the the past week or so is that particularly now that we've got kind of 400, 450 basis points of tightening in, in a lot of countries, it's really time for central banks to go slow. Yes, they may need to keep policy relatively tight over the next 12, 18 months. Yes, there's a bit more work to do to squeeze inflation out of the system. But I think the really... Aggressive rate hikes are behind us now, and and to the extent that there's any pressure to revert back to those, well, then those those risks in the financial system will just start to crystallise. That
0: suggests talk of a 50 basis point hike this week, looking a bit premature now. You talked about the challenge for all policymakers, and I did want to ask about the rest of the world. We saw global bank stocks hit last week in light of what was happening in in California. But do the problems at SVB present a clear and present danger to financial systems outside the US? And if so, what does that mean for the policy-making calculus? On our specifically, the ECB, for example, they're going to be meeting on Thursday. Fifty basis point hike seems to be a, a done deal as far as the signals from the the Governing Council are concerned. We were looking for more hawkish messaging to come out of that meeting. Will SVB be a big part of their deliberations, and 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 indeed should it be?
1: Well, look, we're still trying to unpick uh, the kind of tangled web around SVB and where that leads us in terms of the exposures. It looks like there might be some exposures in, in UK tech, but maybe not in European tech. We'll see how that plays out over the, the coming days. So the direct exposures to SVB look like there might be limited in the case of the, the Eurozone. So in that sense, it won't be a major part of the deliberations of policymakers in Frankfurt. I think the bigger concern really is whether there's an event like SVB lurking in the shadows within the Eurozone is, as we've talked about on this podcast before, a more fragile financial system than is the case in the US, because ultimately it's a monetary union that's, that's incomplete, um, despite best efforts over the over the past decade or so to, to shore things up, institutions up there. So yes, there's much greater scope for financial instability in the eurozone. Set against that, the ECB has not tightened policy by anywhere near as much as at the Fed or, for that matter, the Bank of England. So they're a bit further behind the curve. So I suspect at this stage, it's something that they're going to be keeping a very close eye on. Assuming that we don't get major financial dislocation that spreads to Europe over the first half of the coming week, then I suspect 50 basis points increase is still the most likely outcome in the case of when when the ECB meets this week. But yeah, a lot will depend on, on whether we see that dislocation spread.
0: That was Neil Shearing on the risks posed by the Silicon Valley bank collapse in beijing the annual session of the national people's congress china's legislative body's been running for just over a week in one of the least surprising developments in modern chinese politics the npc approved xi jinping for a third term as president which follows his reappointment as head of the communist party last october i spoke with julian evans pritchard our head of china economics just before the end of the npc And I started by asking what five more years with Xi Jinping in charge will mean. I think a lot of it will
2: depend on how developments play out over the next few years. I don't think anything is set in stone at this stage. But clearly we know what the government is aiming for based on what they've what they've laid out at the and you see, and we know that, you know, what concerns them, what keeps them up at night. So in terms of their economic goals, they've sort of gone quite conservative, set a a lower than expected growth target. And I think that reflects the fact that obviously having missed last year's growth target by quite a large margin, but for the first time uh, in decades, they're they're sort of being a bit more cautious going forward about unforeseen potential shocks. I mean, if everything goes well, growth this year will probably easily exceed that target, just given the rebound from reopening. Um, but I do think that they're stepping forward with greater caution. And part of the the reason for that is they're obviously still very concerned about the financial risks surrounding real estate developer debts, but also one area that got a lot of focus at the MPC was local government debt risks as well. So they want to give themselves a bit more room to try to tackle the, those issues. And as a result, they're being a bit more cautious on the near-term growth outlook. In terms of the sort of medium term, you mentioned, you know, I think the biggest challenge for Xi Jinping is going to be how to deal with the growing decoupling with the U.S. And and that's, you know, a big focus at the NPC is preparing for that continued fracturing in the relationship with, with the West and boosting self-sufficiency, particularly in technology, in, in anticipation of that.
0: Going into the NPC, a lot of talk about the party increasingly imposing itself on state functions. Not a new theme. It's been gathering pace since, since Xi Jinping assumed the top spot in 2012. But there does seem to be a lot more coverage about this process. Is there anything to this, and what does this mean from a macroeconomic perspective? If there is, well, we
2: have seen a shift in that direction. So obviously, the party has always, you know, the, the, the sort of big brother in the relationship between the state and the state's always been subservient to the party. But there was a period starting from from the Deng Xiaoping era all the way to the end of the Hu Jintao era where the state bureaucracy had a certain degree of autonomy. Obviously, the, the direction still came from the top, from the party, but a lot of the specifics were left up to bureaucrats to to, to come up with. That started to change under Xi Jinping. That's, you know been happening for a while, that the center of economic policy making has shifted from the state council to party committees and leading small groups instead. And I think that's a trend that we're saying continue at the moment. One of the big outcomes of the MPC is a restructuring of the State Council. And as part of that restructuring, they're giving the Ministry of Science and Technology greater clouts to sort of lead the push for for breakthroughs in technology and self-reliance. But as part of that, they're also introducing a a party committee on science and technology, which will oversee the work of, of that government department. And so that's one area where yeah that they, they they clearly think that greater party control will will be helpful in terms of achieving their goals we're also seeing you know, signs of that on in terms of financial sector regulation as well we don't know the details at this stage but there are rumors that there'll be a new committee party committee introduced to oversee financial sector regulation as well and a talk that Li Feng, who is assumed will replace so leil haston sort of the the, the economic tsar who leads economic policy through these party committees could take the role of party secretary in, in the PBOC. That would be the first time in in decades where you've had the, the party secretary of the, the PBOC being somebody who has such clout in the party and, and would somewhat undermine the position of the PBOC governor. So I think these are all examples of the party imposing greater control on day-to-day policymaking in a way that we
0: haven't seen, at least since Deng Xiaoping. What does that all mean in terms of the visibility of the policymaking process? I mean, it's never been very transparent, but at least uh, there was a time when you always had a fairly strong sense of where the policy winds were, were blowing you know, around things like monetary policymaking, for example. And that's become a lot more difficult to gauge in recent years, hasn't it? It's been a lot harder to read. Do you see that changing now that we've got this reshuffle underway, now that, that Xi Jinping's people are are in place, or, or will it continue to be as murky as it has been in the recent past? I
2: think hmm. there is a risk of reduced transparency because the state institutions are generally a bit more transparent than than the party committees. You, know, you take the State Council, for example, it, it produces a lot more documentation and proposals, detailed proposals, than than the party economic committees, which generally put out very very short and brief communiques or, or boilerplate language. So I do think it, it you know it, it could come at the cost of transparency. We, we've seen that to some degree already with the PBOC in recent years, where it's been increasingly clear that the PBOC is trying to provide forward guidance to the market. The trouble is, because they're they're not actually ultimately in charge of their monetary policy decisions, we've had situations where um, the state council or the premier has come out and said that they're going to cut the reserve requirement ratio, for example, just a few days after we've had PBOC forward guidance suggesting the opposite. So, it's really been a challenge for the BBC to provide accurate forward guidance in that kind of institutional setup. And, and that's a problem that, that could uh, continue or even, or even worsen
0: as the party asserts even greater control over day-to-day policy. And I also have to ask you about the private sector. Xi Jinping had some fairly supportive words for it in, in recent days. Does this mean the private firms are out of the doghouse? And if they are, how much scope are they going to have to operate in this post-rectification environment?
2: Well, something has clearly changed in terms of the rhetoric. I think there's been a realization internally that a lot of damage has been done. There was one of the key priorities this year at the MPC in the government work report was just to boost confidence and to boost confidence among entrepreneurs in particular. And that's something that we haven't seen as a big priority since 2019, which was obviously... During the backdrop of the U.S.-China trade war, so clearly that you know they're, they're shifting their priorities towards doing a you know a bit more damage control, and as a result, I don't you know we might not see as aggressive the regulatory moves against the private sector in the near term. As a result, but I think it would be unwise to rule out the possibility of future rectification campaigns. Certainly, the sort of broader common prosperity agenda and objectives haven't gone away. I think they're no longer being uh, Emphasised as much in in the latest sort of policy documents, but you know there's clearly still an undercurrent there. And at one of the speeches that Xi Jinping gave during the NPC, he did talk about the private sector and and private firms returning more to society and and shouldn't you know uh, overly compensate their their workers and 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 that sort of language is obviously a bit of a concern for for private investors and for the private sector. So I don't think we've escaped that completely, but I do think in the near term, you know, they'll probably take a slightly more cautious approach. But the the bigger picture here and the bigger issue is that if you think about the government's number one objective at the moment, it's really this push for greater self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that's a push that's going to involve a lot more government intervention in the economy, and that's something that they themselves acknowledge. You know, there's, there needs to be a greater role for government in terms of pooling the resources of, of the country to achieve these self-sufficiency objectives, and that inevitably means that you know private firms are at risk of having to to align themselves with the government's objectives, and so that will remain a sort of a, a concern, I think, for, for private entrepreneurs going forward.
0: And that obviously feeds into your idea that, that Chinese productivity growth rates are, are going to be subdued in, in the coming years because of this self-sufficiency push. It all ties in with something you mentioned at the outset about global fracturing, this core view in our analysis of the world economy that coalesces around U.S. and China-led blocks. It was striking, wasn't it, this was contrast in tone from Chingang. Who he had such warm words in in the Washington Post about Sino-US ties when he left the US ambassadorship last year, versus his his first press conference as foreign minister at the MPC, and you know he, with such combative language, he he talked about the, the sort of US-China relationship and the risks around it as it deteriorates. What, if anything, has emerged from the past few days of the MPC that has shifted or strengthened our conviction around this idea that the global economy is is going to be fracturing in the coming decades?
2: Yeah, so press conference at the MPC was very interesting because up until quite recently, at least up until the flare of intentions over the Chinese balloon flying over US airspace, there had been a sense that China was trying to tone down, you know, the the issues with the US and try to sort of mend relations a bit as part of this sort of broader course correction on policy back in November, where they realized that, they, you know, the economy was facing significant uh, headwinds across a broad range of areas, you know, this COVID zero policy, but also the fracturing area. And there was a sense that they needed to correct course and try to reduce some of these strains on the economy across all these areas. And 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 that led to, obviously, the meeting with Biden at the G20 and also just a general sense that maybe relations would would mend a, a little bit. But I think Qingang's press conference kind of suggests that that's not really the way that the Chinese see it. He struck a very defiant tone. Actually, you know, despite all the talk about the wolf warriors being, being relegated, his, his tone wasn't that dissimilar to to what we saw under its predecessor. So, you know, my feeling is that they still very much of the view that the U.S. and its allies are trying to contain China, that there's not much that they can do to change that. And so their their best strategy is just to stick up for themselves as much as they can, you know, maybe try to buy themselves a bit of time, but, but not be scared to... Uh, push back against the U.S. policy and, and the policy of its allies. And, you know, that's something that I think Xi Jinping's own comments at the NPC underscore as well. I mean, he, he specifically singled out the U.S. as trying to contain China. So that's sort of a very unusually direct public criticism of U.S. policy and, and kind of suggests that that they aren't trying to shift to a more consolatory foreign policy stance at this stage.
0: That was Julian Evans Pritchard on China's next five years. Now, there's a growing belief in markets that for all the monetary tightening that central banks have been pushing through, economies have dodged a bullet when it comes to recessions. Not so fast, says Simon McAdam. He's a senior economist on our global team, and his new report explains why the full impact of monetary tightening is yet to be felt and what that means for the growth outlook. He spoke earlier with Vicky Redwood, our senior economic advisor, about the hit to come. And he started by explaining how the market's views around the likelihood of recession has shifted since late last I year.
3: What we had in financial markets was what we would characterize as a a bear market rally where there was confidence that economies would be able to tame inflation without any sort of any sort of hard landing. So we have a soft landing, falling inflation, and that was boosting risky asset prices. But then came the January payrolls and the incredibly strong numbers that we got out of that that payroll report for the United States, that suggested that perhaps the economy was still running very, very hot, and ultimately price pressures would be stickier than, than people had hoped. And that was followed by a slew of data, which sort of reinforced this impression. You know, there was some hard data coming out of the US, which were very resilient for January. You had the January CPI print itself suggested that price pressures were still quite sticky And even in other parts of advanced economies as well you know europe didn't contract as many people as expected in q4 so all of this meant there's a reassessment for the outlook for monetary policy that economies are performing better than we'd expected that inflation is is holding up more so than we'd expected and consequently interest rates would have to stay higher for longer and yet despite this big upward revision in interest rate expectations for the over the next two years there are still really very few signs of a meaningful recession being priced into asset prices. So if you look at like equity risk premiums or earnings estimates for the equity markets or spreads in the credit market, then really not consistent with a, with a big recession. So consequently, we need to revisit this argument and hit home the idea that most of the hit for monetary tightening is probably still to come. And that will, that will produce recessions in most major advanced economies.
4: And so what evidence have we had so far that Economies are feeling the effects of, of higher interest rates. Are they, obviously, there are time lags involved. Are rate rises really starting to be felt yet, or is it still too early? Yes,
3: yeah, so I think there are two, two, two broad areas here. One of them is asset prices. I mean, clearly, monetary policy has been having its effect on let me take the housing, house prices. We've been arguing for some years that there were several advanced economies where house prices were looking very high. Of course, there were even bigger increases in, in house prices during the pandemic, and then you had this massive interest rate hikes across advanced economies. And we've started to see, you know, in several places, double digit percentage declines in house prices from their peaks. You know, if you look at the likes of like, New Zealand and Sweden and Canada, you know, they've all seen about 15% falls in house prices since their peaks in 2022. Now, there is a question of what that actually means for the real economy. Yes, OK, we can see the fallout in house prices, but how does that affect demand? Now, to the extent that house prices are falling, that that slows down mortgage activity. So mortgage approvals, we've started to see those tank. Relatedly, housing starts and home sales have been a weakening as well. And then it has some knock-on consequences. So if you're going to be moving house and buying up housing, you're also probably going to be demanding household goods and furnishings and things like that. So consequently, there's knock-on effects for demand. And we've started to see that in various indicators. Then in addition to the asset prices falling in, res- in response to higher rates. We've also clearly seen effects of higher interest rates more directly um, on household and business behaviour. So if you think about savings, there's been a big shift towards, you know, everybody talks about the amount of deposits that households and businesses are sitting on. But what's actually been happening is that there's been a shift from instant access savings accounts, which have very, very little interest income. There's been a shift from those highly liquid, highly accessible cash deposits into longer term less liquid deposits that yield a higher interest rate. So people are clearly responding to higher interest rates by trying to lock in higher interest income on their savings and thereby making that those resources less available to spend in the real economy. So we've seen that in the money data. I think we've also seen copious evidence on the credit in the credit data that there's been a marked slowdown in, in bond issuance for businesses, but also in new lending to households and firms as well from banks and all the Bank lending survey suggests that there's a really big hit to the demand for loans going forward. And then in addition to this sort of new credit, this new borrowing being hit, you've got all those existing borrowers, people who took out a mortgage or a loan many years ago and are still paying it off and will continue to pay it off in the years to come. But they're starting, many of them are starting to see their interest costs on those existing loans also increase. And that's just eating into their disposable incomes and hence making it more likely they're going to have to trim back on spending as well.
4: So to to try and really quantify this, how much of the impact of higher interest rates do you think we've already seen and how much do you think is yet to come through? Are we past the worst or is actually the the bulk of the impact yet to to come through, do you think?
3: Yes, this is the key question. And I think that from the analysis that I've done, it, it seems to me that we have not seen the worst of this. The peak effect of monetary tightening is yet to come. I mean, a lot of people in this debate about whether we're going into a recession or not in 2023 They always like to quote Milton Friedman about how monetary policy operates with long and variable lags. And that's a very well-repeated phrase, but it doesn't add a huge amount of detail. It's the work that I've done tries to add meat to the bone in this regard and tries to work out about when do we expect the peak effect to be. I think it's probably going to be around the middle of the year. Obviously, the economy has been holding up better than we had thought at the very beginning of 2023. But looking at past relationships, both in terms of how interest rates feed through savings behaviour and the behaviour about regarding new borrowing and how that feeds through to interest-sensitive areas of spending. If you think about things like auto sales, you know a lot of people buy cars with credit, white goods for households. Again, a lot of that is financed with new credit. So to the extent that new borrowing becomes more expensive, I think it'll be a matter of time before we start to see those, those sort of more downstream areas of spending get hit as well. So on past form, again, you'd expect that to be coming around the middle of this year, and then there's also the issue about existing borrowers. They're, as interest rates rise, higher mortgage rates and higher corporate bond yields feed through to those interest costs of people with outstanding debt. Again, this takes time to feed through the system, and I think again we've got we've we've started to see interest costs rise. So we've got the latest data, unfortunately, are only for Q3, but as of Q3, we already started to see this effect take hold based on what has happened to market interest rates, what's happened to mortgage interest rates, what's happened to bond yields, and taking into account our forecasts for these variables, it's quite clear that most of the hit through this channel is also set to come. So I think it's pretty clear that most of the hit from tighter monetary policy is yet to feed through. Given what the sort of analysis that we've done, I would probably put that number at about two thirds of of the hit is yet to come through. But this is you know, quite uncertain.
4: And so what does that mean for growth prospects for economies for the rest of this year?
3: Yeah, so we, I think it was ever probably since about the middle of 2022 that we had been forecasting recessions in many major advanced economies. And we still think we are, we are sticking to that view. You know, some of the, the recent resilient data that we've seen, I think, has caused some people to either wobble on their recession calls or even throw in the towel altogether. Uh, I think that's the wrong conclusion to come to. As I say, we're yet to see most of this monetary hit come through. So I think it's fair to expect that whilst Q1, we might see some positive numbers out of the GDP figures that we'll get for the first quarter, maybe some stagnations in some places, but it doesn't look like we're going to be getting deep contractions in the first quarter this year. Um, But going into the second quarter, I think that's when we'll start to see some of this greater weakness feed through. So maybe we're looking at sort of negative GDP prints in Q2 and Q3 this year is quite possible.
4: Um, And let me just play devil's advocate on a couple of points. So one could argue that the private sector have built up quite large cash balances during the pandemic, in part due to generous government support. And so people, firms and households have money that they can use to spend. So even if they are hit by rising interest rates and higher debt payments, they've got those resources that they can use to carry on spending. What do you make of that argument?
3: I'm not convinced. I mean, the the first thing here is you've got to get, you've got to disentangle aggregate effects from distribution. So it's true that in aggregate, households and businesses are sitting on lots and lots of deposits and an unusual amount of deposits, you know, far bigger than you'd expect based on trends before the pandemic. And this consequently should be generating more interest income. That is absolutely true in aggregate. But let's just think about the distribution here. Who holds these deposits? And I think admittedly, data are are scant and sparse, and it is difficult to be absolutely certain with the numbers. But I think it is fairly reasonable to expect that the bulk of the excess deposits that have been accumulated have been accumulated by richer households, not poorer ones, i.e. it's precisely the households that are very unlikely to dip into their savings to fund spending are the ones with all the savings that are going to be generating this interest income. So I'm not convinced that this will be a source of income that is going to boost spending in the in the real economy. But even, let's say we're just wrong on that, and regardless of the distribution, if anybody is earning greater income from the interest on their savings, then should they should, you know, theory would dictate in most cases, they should, that, that should encourage them to save even more. And indeed, this is exactly what, you know, coming back to what I said earlier, that we've already started to see households and businesses taking advantage of higher interest rates to move their deposits into and lock them in to time deposits, into into saving accounts that were locked away for periods of time to get higher interest. So I think the extent that excess deposits are generating higher income, that will just incentivize more saving, not less. So that's less spending, not more.
4: OK, interesting. And let me just throw one other thing at you. What's about this idea that we've had a shift towards fixed rate debt in recent years in a lot of countries, and that will insulate a lot of borrowers from the effects of rising interest rates? And indeed, it might be that by the time these for example, fixed rate mortgages expire and central banks have brought policy rates back down again and we we never see the impact of of higher interest rates come through
3: yeah i think this is a it's a a very good point because it's particularly if you look at the likes of households in europe i think this is where the, the evidence is most clear where there has been since the global financial crisis a big shift in mortgage markets away from variable rate mortgages towards fixed rate mortgages And within fixed rate mortgages, shifting towards longer durations as well. So there's been a shift that means that for a period of time over the next year or two, there are going to be many, many households in Europe that are just going to sit this one out, they're not going to see their interest expenses rise at all because they've locked it in for the next couple of years. So that's definitely the case. It's not just households though, there is evidence to suggest that also many businesses across advanced economies have also shifted away from variable rate loans over towards fixed rate loans so they too are more insulated than than in previous tightening cycles but this is precisely why we've got such an aggressive tightening cycle in the first place i think you know if you go back a year no one would have expected interest rates to have risen as far as they have done and they have precisely i think because the economy has been less sensitive to higher interest rates than in previous cycles it is important to note however that it this isn't a universal phenomenon you know the likes of there are several economies and sweden jumps to mind where there hasn't been any sort of shift towards fixed rate debt as far as we can tell. And they are being, and as you would expect, what we can see in the data is that they are being hit very hard by higher interest expenses. So it's not universal, but to the extent that it does dampen the monetary policy transmission, to the extent that it makes life harder for central banks, the risk is that just interest rates stay higher for longer. And, you know, there's this idea that because the... um, households and businesses are more insulated than higher rates, that somehow we'll manage to escape a recession, dodge a downturn. I don't think that's likely. I think what's more likely is that central banks have to respond precisely because of this insulation. They have to respond with higher interest rates.
0: And that's it for now. You can find all the analysis referenced in this episode on the podcast page, which I'll link to in the show notes. All our insight can be found on our website, capitaleconomics.com. And for the full analytical experience, including interactive data and charting and a host of tools to engage with our economists, check out CE Advance, our new premium digital platform. But until next week, goodbye.